News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Harry Siegel. Hello. Christina Greer is traveling and we'll be back next week. So let's jump right in with just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York. A congressional ethics investigation found that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez may have broken House ethics rules during her 2021 Met Gala appearance. That's the one where she wore the Tax the Rich gown. The investigation found that her office made some attempt to hide Vogue's role and suggested the five-figure tickets to the gala for her and her now fiancé came from the Met Museum rather than the publishing giant Condé Nast, which is part of a larger publishing firm that itself lobbies Congress. The ethics committee found that she didn't pay her hairstylist or the bill for the hotel, the Carlisle, or the car to the gala until after their investigation started. And by the way, uh, I had no idea how much rooms of the Carlisle cost. Her share of the rooms there cost around $5,000. And her makeup artist also did not get paid until a representative sent a message to AOC's staff noting that, quote, it would look terrible if we had to file a complaint with the New York Department of Labor against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, end quote. Speaking of exceptionally generous arrangements, Law 360 broke a wild story about Janet DeFiori, the state's former top judge, who had an around-the-clock chauffeur and a protective police detail in an unprecedented arrangement that cost taxpayers a million dollars a year. She's kept her driver and her security as a private citizen after abruptly resigning last August amid an unrelated ethics investigation. But guess what? She never received any written authorization for that protection. Reporter Frank Runyon didn't find any publicly reported threats or police records that seemed to justify her unique setup, but the arrangement continues. Austin Locke, a Starbucks worker who was fired last July, days after helping to organize a successful vote to unionize his shop in Long Island City, was rehired this week and received $21,000 in back pay and fines from the company. Starbucks did not admit to any wrongdoing as Locke became the first person to win his job back under New York City's new Just Cause law for fast food workers. Just as we started recording, Eric Adams released The Road Forward, a new blueprint for the city's approach to migrants at a time when New York is spending $5 million a day to house and support them with little help from Washington or Albany. The plan includes a new Office of Asylum Seeker Operations that will, quote, allow existing city agencies to refocus on their core missions, unquote, as well as a new 24-7 arrival center to replace the ad hoc operation at the Port Authority now. Adams, in announcing this, was asked twice where that arrival center would be and could not immediately say. We'll have more to discuss about this very soon. The road forward came a day after Adams perhaps looking to turn the page from a lengthy news cycle that followed his remarks last week, objecting to any separation between church and state. He's backpedaled slightly since then and saying that God had decided to make him mayor of New York. He hasn't backpedaled from that at all. Made lots of little news in his latest round of short lightning round interviews with uh, mostly pliant TV and radio outlets. In those, he defended the NYPD's so-called strategic response group that, among other things, responds to mass protest events after the city agreed to pay $6 million to George Floyd protesters, cops kettled and roughed up in Mott Haven in 2020. Adams also defended the NYPD's unilateral decision not to testify at a city council hearing about the SRG. In another appearance, 
Adams said that stores should refuse entry to anyone wearing a face mask as a way to protect themselves from robbers, an idea NYPD Chief of Patrol Jeffrey Madry had raised four days earlier. The mayor brought it up for the first time just after a man wearing a full-body hazmat-type costume and face mask shot and killed a 67-year-old Delhi employee in Manhattan as part of a two-store robbery spree in that getup also asking for all the cartons of Newports. A NYPD source told me that the department doesn't specifically track mask robberies, but that there's been a significant increase in the number and share of them during the pandemic. It's unclear if Adams call for shoppers to unmask on entry. And remember, this is just two years after the NYPD was struggling to enforce a COVID masking requirement, is about his old school instincts or my guess, about the NYPD's newfangled facial recognition technology abilities. Shifting from the finest to the bravest, Adams gave his firmest endorsement yet to Laura Kavanaugh, the fire commissioner who's been publicly battling her own department's brass since shortly after the mayor officially gave the job to her in November after letting her serve eight months as interim commissioner. Finally, the city council held its first budget meeting on Monday just after releasing its analysis, anticipating $5.2 billion more in tax revenue than the mayor's office projects in its relatively austere $102.7 billion budget proposal, setting the stage for a fight between lawmakers looking to use government funds to ease the pain of a downturn for New Yorkers, not to mention opening public school pools year-round for the first time ever, and an administration that's been preaching fiscal discipline. Katie, you reported on that pool proposal for the city on Monday. What's at stake for New Yorkers in this budget fight when it comes to swimming and pools and beaches? Thanks, Harry. Yeah, you know, the um, the pool aspect, I will point out the DOE would, will get mad because the pools are technically open, I guess, year-round if you have the money to pay for the school safety officer and the the uh, support service building, you know, the building support service people, the janitor and that sort of thing. You know, I know what the council wants to do is make these actually more accessible, right? You have about a couple dozen um, DOE pools all kind of open, various, uh, some are open, some are closed for maintenance. Um, and, you know, we don't have that many indoor parks department pools, and those are also sort of sometimes closed, sometimes open. At the city, we've reported a lot about them. But, you know, the goal for the city council is just trying to teach New Yorkers how to swim. The, the data on what percentage of particularly Black and Brown and Asian New Yorkers that don't know how to swim is startlingly low. We're a city surrounded by water. And also it, it creates safer beaches and pool situations, and it also creates a pipeline for being a lifeguard, which, you know, is... I know people are trying to increase the salary for lifeguards, and that's obviously they should, but it's not the worst job to have. You know, my friends who are lifeguards growing up, if they ended up working for the city, they started paying into their pension at 16, which is a benefit if that's your end goal, working in one of the some city jobs. So that is their goal. And yeah, I mean, what we're going to have over these next couple weeks and months is really spirited debate within the council on this upcoming budget. Listening to the budget hearing yesterday, which was Monday, um, there was a, a big focus on staffing levels. Um, that's what the speaker told me was a big concern. It was really apparent in what was being asked. Jock Jiha admitted that of these vacancies, one of the real challenges that they have in, in, in hiring people is the city's very inflexible remote work policy. I know with the latest city contract that they signed, you know, some unions can maybe 
do a pilot program, but it's not universal. So, you know, I think the concern of the council is these kind of big proposals aside. And, and also, I, I should point out that one of their proposals was to build or identify places to build new pools. I don't even know how much it would cost to build a new pool, um, considering it costs tens of millions of dollars to repair pools. That's what we're seeing at Astoria Park Pool, which is closed this summer for repairs. I think $24 million. Um, those are the kind of big ideas. But then you have the sort of most basic, like, what are what does these vacancies, these thousands of vacancies mean for city services? At the end of the day, that's what the city is supposed to be doing, providing a service to the people who live here. So if you don't have enough people working at HPD, at the Department of Health, at the Department of Investigation, or, um, or any number of agencies, how does that actually affect New Yorkers? So that's what I think will be one of the, the biggest themes throughout these budget negotiations. So on the remote work front, Part of the challenge for the Adams administration is it's trying to hold some line on spending and having just worked out the first city worker contract that is supposed to premise that the pattern for all the ones to follow is if you set up a remote work option for those folks who can work remotely, then you have the uniform services, some social workers and others who absolutely can't who simply can't do their jobs if they're not uh, out and about the city and are going to ask for some form of compensation to reflect that, which would be a big pool of money that that hasn't been identified to this point in this $103 billion budget. Uh, Jacques Jiha, who Katie mentioned, by the way, Mm -hmm. is the Adams administration's budget director, um, and look, these are all vast sums and like vast sums are hard to think about. It's a big reason people, you know, lose lots of money gambling. We've got more of that coming too. <laughs> um, but it, it messes me up with, with things like the pools, like the, the Flushing Aquatic Center, which is supposed to be closed for six weeks, just reopened uh, after several years. As the city reported, it's going to close again in 18 months for further repairs. Um, you know, you have all these pools that are closed. You have the perennial fight about library hours. Yeah. Where the administration inevitably says we're going to cut those. We've talked about a bunch on the podcast and then the council fights and says, look, we restored them. And it's such a big budget that some of these things seem like they, they, to me, at least maybe maybe I'm a hippie or I knew one of those, uh, you know, more bake sales uh, for the <laughs> Pentagon bumper stickers. But like these seem like rounding errors to create really essential things for New Yorkers, like inside places to go with books and resources in the case of libraries. And athletic fields and places that all sorts of New Yorkers depend on, including kids, elderly people, people with physical disabilities, people who are rehabbing. And of course, New Yorkers who need to learn how to how to swim. This just seems like some sort of a minimal bar, along with maintaining park space, uh, that, that we're constantly, it's like Zeno's paradox trying to uh, <laughs> trying to get that done somehow. It's very disheartening. Yeah. And when you think of just how much money goes into different agencies, obviously the NYPD is the the easiest target because they get so much money. The mayor has said, you know, you can't really put a price on public safety, but can you put a price on teaching people how to read or speak English? You know, these are some of – it's not just lending books, right? At a, I think only really of the Queen's Library because that's my library, but just the resume workshops, the programming, the cultural and purely educational things um, – that happen in a library and even parks, the parks budget, you know, it's less than 1% goes to parks. Uh, and even that, it's not just sitting around and rolling around in a grassy hill or whatever. It's the programming, it's the maintenance. Um, 
and other cities do better with parks, with libraries, just in terms of the percentage of their budget, they commit to those things. Yeah. These are yeah. the choices you make. It's, that's why I don't visit other cities, really. I don't want to see what else is going on. <laughs> uh, are there um, other cities? Yeah. Katie, uh, would you, just one other thing to, uh, to, uh, to bring up here from a yeah. uh, very competent and often fastidious hypocrite and uh, controller, Brad Lander. Uh, come You're on the editorializing, pod, not mine. Yeah, <laughs> c- come on the pod. We can talk about this. Um, so Brad Lander put out a report, speaking of those remote workers, talking about how that, along with the uh, tight labor market and the city's slowness in filling positions, has, has led to like a real breakdown in the delivery of critical services with the agencies with the highest vacancy rates tending to correspond with those that deal directly with the uh, needs of New Yorkers, like the uh, Department of Social Services, the Department of Buildings, the, you know, make sure construction is safe, uh, and even the uh, Department of Education, the early childhood part. So, Katie, is there a way out of this trap? If uh, for, uh, for, for, for the city that you see, is Adams right to hold this line on uh, in-person work? And, is, you know, he's saying, you know, masks are for robbers and all that. Like, like <laughs> what's going on here? I just think it's the inflexibility that really kills it for people, right? You know, I I kind of resented that I was used as an example once by the mayor, but he said, you know, I asked him a question about remote work and he said, you're at City Hall every day. But the reality is we don't have a full in-person requirement at the city. And technically, if I was, I'd be at our newsroom in lower Manhattan. You know, I come to City Hall because I'm sick of sitting in my house. But but I'll also like if I need to do stuff, right? If I if I need to be at home for whatever reason, I can do that. And my bosses just care that I file stories at the end of the day. And I think especially for so many city employees, right? The ones who not everyone could work from home and work remotely, but the people who did, you know, they worked and they did their jobs under probably the highest pressure situation, a pandemic. And a lot of them took on extra work. A lot of them kind of were dispatched to COVID relief. And they did this all remotely. So I can understand this feeling of like, wait, so we did our jobs in 2020 and 2021 from wherever we were, right? Our cramped apartments, Mm -hmm. our, our bedrooms, our basements, wherever they were. And I guess, was it not good enough? You know, because that's what I hear from workers. They're like, we did all this stuff. And now you're telling us that somehow it wasn't good enough. We need to be here. And especially, and the mayor doesn't say this now as often as he did initially, but this idea of we need to come back to work for the businesses in Midtown or especially for city workers, lower Manhattan. And I understand that that that's sort of part of this pre-COVID ecosystem that existed, but I can understand why some city workers feel a little bit resentful that they're they're being told, come back to work so you can go to the dry cleaner. And that's another thing. Do people really bring their dry cleaning to work with them? That's one thing I never – my dry cleaner is by my house because <laughs> I always – that's, that's – you know, I, under, I understand the coffee cart and the lunch spot. But, like, you're really bringing your blazers and suits and sweaters. Um, but anyway, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I read all these, you know, testimonials on – Instagram and social media accounts pushing for remote work and just pushing for better working conditions. And people post all the time that they're like, I found a job that, um, and also the other thing, you know, one of the appeals to working for the city was it was sort of mission driven work, right? You know, if you're working for a housing agency, you're helping connect people to homes, you're helping people get out of a shelter system. But there are also a lot of nonprofits that do that. So I've Mm -hmm. read from people who say, look, Mm -hmm. I found a job where I feel just as fulfilled. I'm also helping people. I'm getting paid more. And also if I need to stay home because my kid is sick, 
but still do a little work. And, you know, while I'm checking on Junior sleeping on the couch, that's also a possibility. So that's that's the concern, I think. And I mean, we'll see how the larger labor market works out and and what kind of happens from there. But I think it's always been, it's been a respect issue. And then also like, look, people just want a little bit of leeway when it comes to where they're working. Absolutely. I certainly do. And then, you know, on the flip side, you have the very powerful and important real estate industry that generates a vastly outsized share of tax revenue and is desperate to have people fill up its office buildings. And all the essential workers who kept showing up throughout the pandemic when things were difficult and scary uh, and are like, if you're going to give this very nice boon to everyone else, what you got for us? Right. And that's not going to be cheap. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of the uh, uniformed services and kabuki, uh, what, what what's going on on the latest episodes of the uh, Phil Banks uh, No Will Smith Connection show? I almost think there should be like a previously on the Phil Banks show. Um, this week it was he had a few people. He had someone from the DEP. He had Commissioner Jesse Tish from the Department of Sanitation. He had someone from the NYPD talking about crime. I will uh, file one complaint with the format of it because they basically would have some from the NYPD talk. Then they said, all right, now we got a question from so-and-so. Wait, just to jump in real quick. Yeah. Should have said, th- th- these are the briefings that Sorry. previously barely seen Deputy Mayor for Public Safety Phil Banks is now doing pretty regularly on the premise that he's talking directly to New Yorkers, uh, which yeah. – hmm, at 1230 on a Friday um, when everyone's in their office because they can't work from home. Um, yeah, you know, I actually found it to be informative, but obviously mm-hmm. the – the so, yeah, the way that they laid out is they had – report. you know, reporters could call in and ask, even though we're just down the hall from where it's happening, you could call in and ask questions. It was formatted sort of weird because it's like maybe I had a question about the DEP, but, but she didn't come on after. So all this kind of stuff. And then questions allegedly – from New Yorkers. Um, my conspiracy theory is the first episode had a PJ from Queens and the second episode had a JP from Queens. Very coincidental in my opinion. And, you know, I've asked every PJ and every JP I know in Queens and they said they didn't submit a question. So it's a little sus to me. Um, but you know, these questions are pretty basic. Some of them are interesting questions, but, um, that premise of he's speaking to New Yorkers. I asked Deputy Mayor Phil Banks, you know, what can we expect from this? Will there be other deputy mayors? What's going to happen? Um, so we'll see. I don't know if this is a multi-episode uh, season or what they're going to figure out. I'm just saying that they had regular monthly briefings when the numbers were up or the numbers were down. And John Miller, the longtime NYPD guy and TV news guy, is now back on the TV news side, was here. The last administration, when this one started, is like, you got to do it every month. You know, rain or shine, you come out and you explain the numbers and you answer questions about them. And they stopped doing that entirely when the numbers were difficult. Now that they seem to be a bit better, and notably it is not the commissioner, but Banks, who has the show, uh, they they seem to be inching back toward that, but with with, with no promise of how regularly this is going to be and without connecting those to the numbers as they're coming out. And it just strikes me as another sort of ritual form and another attempt by this mayor, as many do, to control their own programming and try to route around the press and speak directly to the public. But for all the flaws with the media and journalists, and there are many, and how we bring the news out, the idea that we're just going to trust this administration to report on itself just strikes me as on the face of it ridiculous. 
I agree. And, and look, you know, everyone does this, so it's not new. And I can understand the impulse. Like if I was mayor, I certainly would probably get pissed off at like the daily news and the city as well. Um, but uh, all cap city. But yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how long this will last in terms of the people. And I also, I guess I could check. I haven't checked the YouTube uh, numbers to see how many people watch, but um, that seems to be, I don't know how many New Yorkers are actually watching, how many questions they're getting submitted to them. So I don't know. We'll see if it's weekly. Uh, we'll see if other deputy mayors kind of step in, as Phil Banks sort of told me might happen. But um, yeah. And also, I will say, I listened to the most recent episode of Eric Adams' podcast with the owner of Champion Pizza. There's a few of them across New York City. And I thought it was very interesting. I have to say, again, he's a good he's a good host. Absolutely. He's a charming and uh, intelligent and asks some interesting questions. It's obviously, you know, it's motivated to make him and the city look good naturally. Uh, but you get a sense of his appeal um, when he speaks uh, uh, directly in, in that context where he's actually the one asking the questions that I think you don't otherwise. And I think it, it's pretty smart of him to do that. I think it's very smart of him, as I've said, to do these six-minute interviews with just various, often smaller stations, sometimes larger ones, where he knows more or less what's going to get uh, asked. There's not really time or space for any follow-ups, and he can just sort of push out whatever messaging he likes. And he tends to use those, as I mentioned at the top of this pod, to change the topic sometimes when there's like a storyline he's dealing with that he doesn't like. Get him respected. But this is a guy who can uh, clearly walk and chew gum. And the extent to which he is avoiding regular lengthier interviews, for instance, any with this podcast on New York One uh, with Brian Lair, like the last mayor eventually did, resented it, uh, but was fine in those settings, uh, I, I think is a real mistake on his part and, and the way of avoiding sustained and serious engagement that he is more than capable of doing. But he's the mayor and he's uh, you know, entitled to make his own mistakes. That's that's my yeah. advice. I agree. I like that you lumped us in with Brian Lehrer and New York One. I oh, I, I was slipping yes. that in. I agree. We are there. Uh, we also are public media, so donate to the city. <laughs> now that they don't have the mayor, I've thought in the back of my head. I think I might have mentioned this to you, Katie, for years that we should have uh, them and maybe some of the other places. De Blasio was going to regularly, as he set his stuff up. Uh, he was on Mega sometimes. He was on Hot ninety seven. Uh, but what it's like to interview a mayor and when you're doing that regularly. So it's not it's not it's not a one off and you're just asking the hardest questions you can, frankly, but you're providing a um, a platform and some resistance and the mechanics of doing and maintaining that. Because to me, at least that'd be interesting. But maybe that's too inside baseball. Who knows? You never know how inside is too inside. <laughs> Indeed. On that note, uh, you need to get a you need to get. Outside and back to work. If you heard a voice in the background as this was happening, uh, Katie, where are you? Oh, I'm in room. I'm in room nine in City Hall. You know, I I usually but, will. I sometimes will try to record this in the radio room, but the City Council Wi-Fi I poach sometimes goes off, so I have to, you know, let my colleagues in here know. You don't have to change anything, but if you hear me doing the occasional, <laughs> that's right, Harry. That was a great idea. Um, you'll know why. <laughs> that's a great idea, Katie. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Giddy. More soon. F-A-Q. This has been F-A-Q. NYC. We're part of the city. Nonprofit. Nonpartisan. Newsroom. <laughs> <laughs>
dedicated to hard hitting reporting. I'll, I'll take care of the this. people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone but the city dot NYC. And it's supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to the city.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative, independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popular.com. Our hosts this episode were Katie Onan and me, Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Our listeners included you, and thank you for joining us and making it this far. Be kind. Be cool. And we'll be back soon with more.